This week on the Empire Podcast, we discover whether it's a good day to die hard. We tackle Judd Apatow's This Is 40. And we have four, count them, four different interviewees in the pod booth, including David Oyelowo and The Walking Dead's nefarious governor, David Morrissey. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast, a movie podcast that is moving up to kidnapping, so you should be more polite. I'm back, 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 despite public demand, after two weeks away on a secret mission, about which you can read in the next issue of Empire, which is on sale at the end of this month. That's February, February 28th, to be precise. Filling my shoes during those two weeks, you've just heard her voice, was, of course, Helen O'Hara, and she's also back, back, back this week, despite her controversial and, frankly, fettest comments about Boba Fett on last week's podcast. Yep. Well, what the heck was that about? I stand by every one of them. Um, I've had a lot of support on Twitter and Facebook and some condemnation. From Han Solo, that. presumably. <laughs> From Yes, Han Solo finally got in touch, so win. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to let it slide to just this once. Uh, next up is Emperor Online's editor-in-chief, a man whose bald head and martial arts training makes him a perfect choice to play John McClane's only retentive super nerd black sheep son in the next Die Hard movie. It is, of course, James Dyer. You pick I. Yeah, became which I think you'll find actually you debuted in the 1967 blah 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 blah. Uh, last but not least, we have the youthful ebullience. Although don't worry, we're beating it out of him every single day. Of Ali Plum, hello Ali. I am editing for you. Yes. You do not know what it's like for me editing for you. It is an up at dawn, pride swallowing cheese. <laughs> Cameron Crow, I apologise. <laughs> anyway, you guys get the idea. It's tough. Yeah. Help me. Help me. <laughs> help me help that you. That was a coded message there from Ali Plum. Right, bumper podcast this week with guests who have more stories in the Nakatomi Plaza. Eh? Eh? I was actually in LA a couple of weeks ago and I went to the um, the thing, the Die Hard premiere thing. Oh, yeah. The mural. Uh, at Nakatomi Plaza. Oh, um, goodness. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, no, it wasn't really. But actually being at a Die Hard party inside Nakatomi Plaza was, was I almost didn't go and then I thought because it was quite late and I'd come back from another thing and then I thought to myself how often are you going to get the chance to go to a Die Hard party yeah. in the Nakatomi Plaza? Well, which has almost another never. name we should probably Do mention. Do people know it that it's the Fox building? Nakatomi Plaza and Die Hard is actually the Fox Plaza the home of 20th Century Fox right by the Fox lot which is on Avenue of the Stars in LA and I was staying at the hotel about 30 seconds walk away from it I've stayed there it's nice yeah it, uh, it, it was amazing every time I, I'm in LA it's my favourite building in the world just above the Battersea Power Station Huh. <laughs> James is just staring at me for some reason. Die you know, Hard do, 8 do, do, do in know, Battersea. Yeah. Do you not have a favourite building in the world? I honestly don't. Hmm. You I honestly do not don't. have a favourite building. You architectural nimble yeah. and poop. Um, so anyway, the Academy Plaza, and it's just an amazing, amazing building, and I love it. And of course, it pops up, doesn't it? It was in, or a version of it was in the Star Trek trailer recently. Yeah, they, and I they, asked yeah. about that, and uh, and certainly the guy in charge of the visual effects knew nothing about it. So unless one of his <laughs> underlings good. kind of sneaked it in, because it's meant to be San Francisco, it's just a similar LA. building. Um, okay, he reckoned. All right, well, speaking of Die Hard, we're going to start off the interviews with the up-and-coming Australian actor playing Bruce Willis's son in A Good Day to Die Hard. Jai Courtney made an impact late last year as a villain going up against Tom Cruise in Jack Reacher, and he can now be seen as another Jack, Jack McLean, or John McLean Jr., to give him his full name. Uh, in the fifth Die Hard movie, he popped into the booth recently to have a good old natter with myself and Ali. Uh, we are delighted to be joined in the pod booth by Jai Courtney, the star of A Good Day to Die Hard, which I almost said... A good day to Jai Hard, uh, which I'm sure you've heard a few times by now. A couple, yeah. Yeah. When did when did that first start? 
I think when I was when when the possibility of getting the role was was becoming real, people started throwing that around or asking me if the you know they started calling me Jai Hard. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean it works sometimes. It does work. The first time you heard it, you went, "That's pretty, yeah, pretty it's clever." Well, it's funny, and then a lot of people thought they were the ones that came up with it, and it started <laughs> to get old. And then people would text me, and it's like, "Yeah, we've, we've done that." <laughs> yeah, I'm away in here. I was walking in from the tube, and I went, "Hey." Jai Hard. Yeah, it's very original. And I thought, hang on, hang on a second. Yeah, well no, you've done, probably heard that before, but I wanted to run past you yeah, to see if you thought. Get over it. <laughs> so you've just you're recovering now from last night's London premiere. Yeah, it was How a was fun it? night. Yeah. It was good. The weather was a little uh, little crappy, but what are you going to do? It was lovely, man. We had a good turnout, and um, yeah, it was fun. fun I mean, on the plus side, you had a, a massive helicopter. They, as a kind of they got the prop. helicopter there, which was very impressive indeed. It was yeah, they put on a good show. The girls on the bikes and the the chopper and yeah, it was, it was cool. Indeed. Not bad at all. So this is part of your tour now. This is part of the so This is part of the tour. You're racking up the air miles. So it was last week was LA when you un- unfailed with Bruce and John Worley the mural. That's right, yeah. At Nakatomi Plaza. Well, Nakatomi in, in Plaza. In the shadow of Nakatomi mm-hmm. Plaza. It was pretty cool, man. It was very, yeah, very cool indeed. It's, uh, I actually love that. I love that shot, that little sequence in the in the first movie when he's crawling through the air duct. So I was glad they chose that as the image. Uh, let's, let's talk about the, the, the first movie and the Die Hard legacy before we talk about Good Day to Die Hard. Sure. Because what age were you when Die Hard came out? Two. You were two. Right. So I'm guessing the first Die Hard movie you actually saw would have been three very good Chris there you go very mathematics good. <laughs> basic good old mathematics so Die Hard with a Vengeance yeah. so when did you first you know did you ever get into Die Hard was it something that you you watched as you were growing up it, they were films that I, I you know I was I was never like a fanatic or anything it wasn't like a franchise I latched onto and um, was crazy about but I guess that's because I was a little behind the time you know and, and couldn't kind of keep pace with it so I just they were films I just caught you know caught them through the over the years and um, I'd seen them all uh, when this kind of whole journey started and then you know got the pleasure of going back and watching them and mm. well, were you revising so. did you have a notepad were you going oh that's good but yeah that's good that. yeah I was doing that getting like the one liners down and <clears throat> you know trying to work on some catchphrases of my own <laughs> you know, just workshopping things and stuff. Were well, you looking at Bruce for mannerisms because, you know, like father, like son? Exactly, yeah. No, right. it's funny because I think some of those things bled in there and, and you know, I joke that, you know, of course, that was part of the preparation, but it, it really wasn't. I didn't, there was nothing that, uh, you know, I wasn't trying to mimic anything he does really at all. But um, I think some of that stuff happened organically because people have made mention of the similarities of certain things and expressions and stuff. My friend had a... Um, a term he liked to use in reference to one of Bruce's looks, which was pony eye. And I'm not, I'm not sure what that means. When, <laughs> if I, I can't show you what that means. I mean, I'm, I can, but no, listeners won't be able to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'll Google it right See now. See if that's a legitimate term or not. Yeah. Pony eye. I only keep talking about. I think that's in one of uh, Findus's lasagnas right now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, w- one thing I was wondering is when you were preparing for this role, I can imagine the first thing I'd do if someone said to me, "Hey, you're going to be." In the fifth Die Hard, which I would have called Five Hard, by the way. But five Hard is a good one. Nice. <laughs> Thank you, sir. The first thing I would have done is run home, find a vest, and put it on, and pose. Now, you don't wear a vest in this. That, that I thought was quite not- noticeable that, you know, you were separated. Do you feel like, yeah. you know, you deserved maybe... A vest? Yeah, you know, the vest. <laughs> um, no, nah, well, look, you've got to leave something the way they are. And- <laughs> 
I mean, it would have been good to see Bruce in a vest again. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe there's hope for that in, in the sixth installment if he if he comes back and does another one. But, uh, nah, look, I think there, it, it was an interesting thing because there are, there are a few references to, mm. you know, um, the older films and, and in particular the first one. And I think audiences have, have found some that weren't even intentional. And <laughs> But there definitely are things that, that <laughs> like John... Like Bruce Willis being in it. Like Bruce being in it. I mean, no one... We didn't even plan that, and <laughs> he just turned up. He one just day. turned up, and we were like, eh, "It works." Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, you can't kind of labour those sorts of things. Mm. And I think if I was wearing a vest, it's, it's a little too much. I was speaking to John last week in LA, and he was telling me that uh, the sequence where you and uh, and and John shoot the glass mm-hmm. that there was originally a line in the script where where John went shoot the glass. That's right. But Bruce, who's the arbiter of all things John McClane, went that's too far, so he took it out. <laughs> is that a shame that you you didn't get to say shoot the glass or be in the same room as someone saying shoot the glass um I, look I, just, I didn't lose any sleep over <laughs> <laughs> so what, what was the because um, the, the audition process for this movie mm. was kind of much publicised in a way your name was bandied around with a, a few other people who were up for it including Breaking Bad's Aaron Paul and mm-hmm. uh, how aware at the time were you of those other people was there a big waiting room with everyone no yeah I, I actually wasn't aware at all uh, and because I, I mean I came in quite late in the process and uh, from what I understand they'd done they'd done a round of kind of testing you know the, the casting search was massive and I remember originally reading months and months earlier before anything had happened and you get used to that scenario where you, know, you walk out of an audition and you don't get feedback and you just kind of tear up the you know your lines throw them in the bin and, and go to the next one and um you get very used to that in 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 a town like los angeles when it's just kind of you know there's a ton of stuff you're going up for and um i didn't really give it any thought it was kind of like it was obviously a, you know, a cool project to be going in on but you know them's the break so you mm. kind of just move on and i went off and worked on a film um in Pittsburgh called Jack Reacher and it was when I was just finishing that I think um, I got a call and through that process over the course of about three or four months they had you know been culling and and looking at guys and and, um, testing and I wasn't you know I wasn't aware of that at all I mean had other things to kind of worry about I guess Uh, and then uh, yeah it was like all right, cool it's sort of opened up again Um, so I went back in on my way through LA Oh, so you, had you finished Reacher at that point? Or? Finished Reacher, yeah. and I mean, I, yeah, it's kind of a funny story. I um, I had one day in Los Angeles because I was I was on my way home, in fact, to work on another project, uh, in in Melbourne and um, in Australia. And my agent said, you know, will you go in and just uh, do the audition in the day you've got in LA? I know it's one day, but you know, would you mind? You know, of course, you, know, you kind of do that sort of thing. So I went on in, and um, the casting director said, when are you when are you leaving town? And I was like, in you know, two hours and 45 minutes uh, and she kind of gave me this funny look and I, I was kind of gauging that perhaps it had gone quite well but you know I just you know what are you going to do and I was I was on my way to the airport so I checked in checked in my luggage went through security all that stuff and I got a call as I was walking on the on the onto the plane from my manager Sam saying uh, dude are you on the plane and I was like uh <laughs> Sam's uh, in the room, by the yeah, way. Yeah, he's in the room. I, I don't know how impressed he is with that uh, impersonation. <laughs> Sam, what do you think? I mean, he got mad. He was not happy. I wasn't happy. I was really annoyed because I was I was itching to get home. And uh, I was like, what do you mean? He's like, get off the plane. They want to test you with Bruce. And I was like, oh, okay. Oh, 
now what can I go home for a week can I come back <laughs> and then you, he's like dude listen to what you're saying man and I was thinking yeah you're right this is awesome and so uh, of course I, I swiftly uh, you know went and saw some airport personnel and, and held up the plane delayed it a little <laughs> you were that guy I was that guy I mean they never knew obviously because they were all just sitting on the yeah had to drag my bag off they'll probably all, you know and I, you know, it's it's very annoying, but it was high stakes stuff. I mean, a real genuine emergency. It must be easy to stop a plane, though. Bruce Willis needs me. Exactly. Turn this plane around, guys! <laughs> stop! <laughs> I've got an audition. God damn it! Uh, yeah. So you you got to the audition that day? No, I fortunately I had a few days to uh, to prep for that, and obviously got very excited and and you know nervous, and uh, you know it was it was becoming kind of real at that point. Um, that's obviously the next step you know you, you you kind of move through the testing process and on something like this I think you know it was very important for them to find the right guy so they were kind of I mean it, it dragged on a lot longer than that it was um, a real committee thing and a lot of people umming and ahhing um, before they they committed to it but uh, I went in a few days later and uh, met Bruce met John Moore and we had this great session like it was really I remember it, it was so much fun it was about 90 minutes we're in the room, we're jamming the scenes, improvising some stuff. We're, you know, we had fake weapons, we're waving around and, uh, this, you know, this sort of skeleton camera crew. And um, it was just awesome, man. I remember walking away thinking that, like, if nothing happens with the project, that that, that really was a, a once in a lifetime, you know, mm-hmm. experience. And uh, and just, you know, having fun with Bruce Willis. And it was pretty cool. So now you've worked with both Tom Cruise and Bruce Willis. Who's next? Are you going to see if you can get Gene Hackman? to star with you in a movie like what other well, we're Elder just talking about statement? Val Kilmer on the way here I mean maybe <laughs> perfect maybe we can drag him out of retirement hit him up on Twitter he's uh, he's always <laughs> tweeting things is he yeah I go, would, go I straight would. to the source okay yeah. <laughs> yeah. cut out the middleman yeah, that's, that's what I would say but um, the the experience of this movie because we were talking about mannerisms and talking about you know Jack following in John's footsteps mm-hmm. the accent for one thing I mean you know John Openly, you know, describes Jack as the 007 of Plainfield, New Jersey. So, how difficult was it to get the accent right? Well, fortunately, that was just one of Bruce's ad libs. So, uh, <laughs> so you were going, "Oh shit, I'm in a completely different." Place. I was like, "Oh great, now I got to work on the Plainfield, New Jersey accent." Thanks, bud. No, um, John Moore actually. I mean, I, I I showed up to the first read with a, a, a much heavier kind of East Coast accent, you know, and uh, he was like, "Yeah, you know, cut it back." <laughs> It's like this guy's educated, you know, this and uh, you know, Ivy League school, all this sort of thing, and, and wanted it to kind of be much more neutral. And but American accents are one thing; Russian accents are another thing, especially in Russia. Yeah. Now, I I believe it or not, this yeah. is slightly embarrassing to admit. Studied Russian to GCSE here in England. Mm. I could probably remember what's your name, and I have three geese. <laughs> how did you? How did you remember? How I mean, yeah. I, I find <laughs> speaking Russian so hard. It is. It's tricky, isn't it? But, I don't. I don't remember uh, barely anything now. I could probably, you know, get through uh, a, a greeting, and that's about it. Yeah. But um, that was the most challenging part about about you know preparing for this role. It was um, a lot of people talk about the stunts and the physical preparation and you know getting in shape or whatever, and, and think that that's the kind of the challenging part. But for me, it was it was the language, man, and mm. um. There were, you know, some days were really tough. I mean, there's a there's a scene that's not in the movie, fortunately, because I never felt good about it. But um, <laughs> we were actually uh, purchasing guns in this scene at one point, and 
we showed up to set that day and I don't know whether this was a, you know, it was a props thing or it was just a, you know, it was about aesthetics or whatever, but we didn't know what guns we were going to be buying till, uh. till we got there and shot that scene. And, um, all the dialogue was brand new and it was just kind of like, <laughs> so, you know, I don't actually speak Russian, right? Like I can't, I can't improvise this sort of thing. What's and Russian for AK? Exactly. Yeah. Aka or some shit. I don't fuck. Aka, Um But uh, it was like, yeah. And I, I had to pull out the old Brando thing and like, you know, writing my lines on oh, a really? big sheet of, yeah, pa- 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 paper. <laughs> With a, on throwing the, it up on the wall. I didn't have the coffee cup and like, <laughs> the back of an ice sticking tray. around the room. No. <laughs> on but, the back of the gun. So this is a. Uh, this is a. Uh, <laughs> exactly. But uh, but no, I remember kind of walking away, being like, "That must have been god awful," and uh, <laughs> I'm sure that you know I would have embarrassed myself in front of the Russians. I, I spoke to a Russian journalist the other day who was she was pretty straight up with me. Who she didn't feel any need to be overly complimentary. Oh wow! I was like, Your Russian is is, is okay. <laughs> How was her English? Uh, yeah, right back at yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Well, Johnny, it's been a pleasure, sir. Are we out of time already? We're out of oh. time. Can you believe it? I'm having so much Over half fun. an hour. Sam, you happy you have enough? That was perfect. Couldn't be better. <laughs> Grant. All right. Uh, thanks very much. Rock Cheers. and roll. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Cheers, Joe. So that, so that was Jai Courtney. And uh, did you know that the guy who played John McClane Jr. in Die Hard, do you mm-hmm. know his name? Bob. No. You don't know. You know everything about Die Hard, but you don't know this. I don't know. Is it Clive? It is not. No. It is Noah Land. Noah Land. And he hasn't made a film since. Presumably dead. Anyway. Oh, harsh. Time to, time to take no your questions now. if you're listening, we'd like to apologise for oh, that. Unless, of course, you're dead, in which case you can't. Uh, time to take your questions now. Some good ones this week. Uh, at Enclo asks, embargoing a film. Ever for a good reason or simply a way to stop bad reviews? Now, this is in relation to the fact that uh, reviews for A Good Day to Die Hard were embargoed until the day of release. Uh, i.e. Thursday although some did start leaking out late on Wednesday night um, so what do we think? Well I mean I think in theory they can be for a good reason I think if you talk to studio publicists those kind of people they would say they don't want all the hype hitting three weeks before the film comes out and everyone to have forgotten about it by the time it actually hits cinemas and that's why they say they embargo everything until the week of release that they want you know it all to kind of be on people's minds at the right time and not sort of six months out. It's called controlling the conversation. Do you remember last year when uh, David Denby, the critic at The New Yorker, uh, broke embargo Mm. on Girl with a Dragon Tattoo and and it just started a whole world of nonsense about embargoes and critics yeah. and when they when they can talk about the thing and, what, and whatnot and that's when that phrase I first heard that phrase at PR saying we're controlling the conversation you can kind of see why although my feeling on it is if you see a great film and you think it's a great film and you tell someone six weeks ahead of the film's release they're going to remember if yes. you're that passionate about it they will remember and they will go and see it when it comes out and let's face it uh most of the time that they are really concerned about controlling the conversation is when the film is let's say disappointing yes. if not utterly dreadful yes um, uh, you know those are the films that don't screen in advance those are the films that are embargoed to day of release for the most part for the most part not always not always, not always. Not always. there have been some surprises but generally speaking if they're not showing you a film sometimes yeah it's because it's not quite finished yet I mean you know Peter Jackson for example works up until the wire you know lots of his big films King Kong I think was finished what like a week before the I think it was finished a week after 
after it came out. Well, yeah, probably. Uh, you know, it, it, he really, really works up until the very last minute, and there are other filmmakers who do that. So sometimes you can't screen something uh, a long time in advance, but at the same time, it's often not a good sign. Also not a good sign. And people are aware of them now. Uh, you know, a lot of our readers are aware of the uh, of embargoes. And whenever you say something like, as we did on Twitter this week, because uh, people are asking for a, a review of Die Hard, and we're going, well, we can't give you a review of Die Hard because there's an embargo until they have release. And now people automatically associate that with a big stinking turd. And so they put the two and two together. Sometimes they come up with five. Sometimes they come up with Die Hard five. <laughs> but we shall see later in the show. Uh, so there you go, embargoes. Uh, at... Hasman101 asks who's the best actor playing themselves in film mine is Neil Patrick Harris in Harold and Kumar well my my favourite would be Matt Damon in virtually anything I mean basically film wise it's Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back where he and Ben Affleck obviously get together to give us Goodwill Hunting 2 hunting season um, <laughs> applesauce <but> bitch <laughs> <laughs> but um, but even like on TV you know his, his long running feud with uh, Jimmy Kimmel uh, is just one of the funniest things you can find it all on YouTube if you don't know about this they have a, a, a long standing ridiculous relationship yeah. which culminated recently in Damon taking Kimmel hostage tying him to a chair and then proving that he could do a better job as a chat show host by bringing in the entire A-list as guests having Andy Garcia replace Kimmel's uh, doorman and uh, Cheryl Crow take over as leader of his orchestra not bad yeah it was alright so um, so yeah him and anything fantastic Ali I've got a whole bunch for this um, I really enjoy this kind of thing so JCVD was the latest I think the most critically respected version of this because he led the whole film in JCVD as a version of him. Um, it was one of those, oh, you can actually act type jobs. And it's by no means, you know, the best film in the world. But it's really interesting to see somebody you knew best as the guy who did the splits in a variety of different movies actually acting kind mm. of as, a, as himself. And he, he has trouble with his kids. There's a legal battle. It's not the most positive. Like, then there's Chuck Norris, who I always bring up from mm. um, yeah, uh, Dodgeball. Yeah. Uh, we've also got, let's get this right, we've, we've got The Trip, which is a TV show, but also A Cock and Bull Story, which is Steve Coogan and Rob yeah. Brydon uh, sending themselves up. Love it. Uh, my name is Bruce, uh, Bruce Campbell. Uh, that's not personally my favourite Bruce Campbell movie I think it's fair enough to say um, but it's good to see him poking fun at himself and also John Malkovich 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 oh, yeah. Malkovich 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 hard for me to look past Bill Murray in Zombieland mm, very good which is fantastic um, I tweeted the other day um, a thought occurred to me someone was talking on Twitter about is John McClane famous in the Die Hard universe because you think he would be having stopped all these terrorist atrocities and so then I thought well hang on is there a you would think that there would, been, there would have been a movie made of John McClane's exploits <laughs> in the Die Hard universe. And if so, is that movie called Die Hard? Who plays John McClane? Etc. Etc. So on and so forth. Which led someone to tweet me. Sorry, sir, I've forgotten your name. Um, someone to tweet me going, uh, yeah, my favourite thing they got is Bill Murray in Zombieland. But his co-star in Zombieland is Woody Harrelson. Who appeared who with him. appeared with him in Kingpin. So, in that universe... Who is his Kingpin co-star? This stuff like this can melt your brain. It is can just this a keep you going Kingpinless universe? It is a king. Is Does it that bear thinking about it? Or have they gone for? Is it you know Rain Wilson? It, you know, is Ted Danson the the, the co-star in Kingpin? Whoa! I don't know. We need to talk to the Farley Brothers about this. Yeah, I think we do. Well, we had a similar yeah. discussion with the whole um, uh, what shall we call it? Um, Martin Sheen and Charlie Sheen in. Uh, Hot Shots Part Two. Hot Shots Part Two. We discussed this previously, and it is brain bending. <laughs> what the idea that uh, I loved you on Wall Street I loved you on Wall Street and they played father and son in that movie and uh, it's Vietnam uh, just uh. yeah it's it's weird it's weird um, 
James, do you have a favourite person playing themselves? God, half of the people who appear in Entourage. Actually, Ben Kingsley in The Sopranos is one that I always really, really liked. I thought that was a lot of fun. It makes a lot of fun out of himself in that. Oh, and Bruce Willis in Ocean's 12. Oh, yes. that, no, 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 yes. no, no. That's yes. dreadful on every yes. level. Yes, it's not dreadful on every level. That's, it's that's only awful. dreadful on most levels. It's, on, it's not. On it's almost brilliant. in every reality. It's avant-garde. It's Soderbergh taking the sequel and giving it a kick up the jacksy. Not forgetting what just happened, yeah. where Bruce has the biggest beard you've ever seen. Which is based, of course, on the classic tale of Alec Baldwin during shooting of The Edge when uh, he they hired Alec Baldwin because you know he looks like Alec Baldwin and then he turned up looking like Alec Baldwin in The Edge positing that basically I'm a photographer I'm, uh, you know, I, I can be a little bit overweight I can have a, a beard and then apparently refused to shave it off this is all in uh, the book What Just Happened by Art Linson which was then turned into the movie um, presumably they, they I don't know if they tried to get Alec Baldwin to play the Alec Baldwin character in the film but Bruce Willis does a very good job it pays off nicely at the end. Um, okay, so next question is from at Lee Alex, who asks, after seeing Edith Bowman playing Star Wars Guess Who, what's the nerdiest game slash film-related activity you have played? <laughs> we work at Empire, so yeah. basically just come I, in to work in the morning. I just bought James Bond Monopoly. I haven't taken it out of the packaging yet. I, I have enough. Star Wars Monopoly. I have two different Star Wars Trivial Pursuits I think really we, yeah. we oh, bring, it, bring it in I, Star Wars playing oh cards. my god I really want to play Star Wars Trivial Pursuit but Ian Freer we, we bought Trivial Pursuit Star Wars for Ian Freer once for his birthday he's the, the biggest Star Wars fan in the office and I've always been terrified of playing because he would kick my I'd ass take him but, but I think I'd take him I think I could, I could take you I, I seem to remember winning a game of Lord of the Rings um, Trivial Pursuit that we played once oh I'd be terrible at Sam's at that. house oh I'd be terrible at that probably why I beat you I don't know. I don't know if I was there. I don't know if I was there at that one. I was, yeah, probably being taken by giant eagles somewhere else. Probably. I don't know. Sorry. I haven't got this game, but I have been eyeing it up for a while. But if anybody knows these words, they are also a nerd. Uh, Settlers of Catan is a very, very particular board game, and there is a Star Trek version which I kind of want to buy. Um, so if you know what I'm talking about, Settlers of Seti Alpha Five would be better. Although you, of course, <laughs> wouldn't do that. That would be uh, an erroneous decision. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Um, okay, if you want to send that to Ali, then please do. If anyone's listening and has it, then please do send it in. That's enough of that to get your question read out. Uh, you can send questions in on Facebook, or Empire Magazine, Twitter, we're at Empire Magazine, hashtag is Empire Podcast, and you can email us, podcast at Empire Online. Of course, you want to get them made out, the main thing to do is make your questions good. Uh, okay, time for another interview. This is uh, from Beautiful Creatures Now, which is the latest contender for the new Twilight Crown that came out on Wednesday. It's a magical romance. Is that fair to say, Helen? Magical yeah, romance sure. between two star-crossed lovers. I mean, tell me if I'm getting any of this wrong. That's fine. One of whom has magical powers? Sure. Good, excellent. The other doesn't? Correct. Hooray! The lovers are played by Alice Englert, who's also Jane Campion's daughter, and Alden Ehrenreich. Uh, and when they came into the booth, they were talking to Helen Yes? Yes. And in an Empire podcast first, Alice Wybrew? That's right. Oh, my God. I was just guessing. You did well. Thank you. Welcome to a special uh, Empire podcast interview. We are joined today by the two stars of Beautiful Creatures. Um, we have Alden Ehrenreich and Alice Englert here. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. So this is Empire magazine, the film magazine. Yeah. You guys did 100 greatest performances of all time probably in the late 90s that, that I, sounds I, I like st us. still have. And really? I had it next to my bed for a long time. Excellent. So yeah. do you do you swat up on that before you start a film? Yeah, I look and I and I yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where it is now. So, I mean, we should probably talk about the film. Um Beautiful Creatures. Uh 
how would you describe it? Is it kind of Southern Gothic? What what are we calling yeah. it? Yeah, I, I, that sounds uh, pretty good. Yeah, like Don't it's like think? a Southern Gothic supernatural romance romantic comedy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really true. I mean, you can chuck just like a lot of adjectives around when mm-hmm. you describe it. And we should get the elephant out of the room, sort of out of the way first yes. of all, because people are going to hear paranormal and ro- or supernatural and romance together and they're going to think my oh, best God. friend's wedding <laughs> my best friend's wedding and nobody wants that so yeah, you know. but, but this is, I mean this, this is a very different feel to it. Is, it is it the southern thing is it just that it's a little bit I don't know it's got a different tone to it somehow doesn't yeah, it yeah I don't know I, I haven't seen the movies that we haven't mentioned yet <laughs> um, I, uh, I don't know I, I just know you know I think all of us just tried to treat this like its own story its own characters Richard's such a phenomenal writer and the mm. book has such rich characters that the experience of making the movie was for me as 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 creatively fulfilling as anything that I've done and um and uh yeah so I I don't know I wouldn't I don't know I I don't I just don't know I haven't seen the other stuff I don't know the genre that well mm. it's quite different to have a love story narrated from the male perspective mm-hmm. was that something nice for you did you like owning that yeah yeah well I knew I wanted to do the movie within three pages of reading it because of the narration uh just the it's like you meet somebody and you have chemistry with them or not it's like I had great chemistry with this character I got him I understood what he was like and where where he was uh coming from um and I asked that you know I was getting this question about the male male uh protagonist and I didn't have a good answer so I asked the the um the writers of the book and what they explained to me is that in this genre there's a lot of stories where the guys are these kind of aloof jerks and um, very cold and they wanted to write a story for young girls that showed that guys can also be literate and and polite and ambitious and smart and and treat you good and you they know. can like you they can <laughs> like you yeah we'll they can treat you nicely and treat like you. you like you know your bad smell right, um, right, for there right. to be sexual and romantic tension. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, I I really love that as well. And I think yeah. Alden um, actually sort of brought the Ethan character um, alive in a way that you couldn't quite comprehend from reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, you. It was there. The potential was there. But it's easy to play the straight guy. Um, and I mean, you know, the, there are sort of uh, so the, the casters in the story, which are kind of magic users, witches, mm. I guess, mm-hmm. of various stripes. Um, I mean, that means working with quite a bit of special effects. Yeah. Every actor I've ever talked to about special effects says they slow everything down. They make it really kind of difficult. Mm. But they seem quite sort of uh, they're, they're used in quite a limited way in this film. So it, yeah. it is kind of more of a character film, I guess. Yeah, no, it was a really conscious decision that um, Richard Legrevenez made to... Um, try and shoot as many of the magical sequences in camera, um, which I th- I think is great because CGI dates so quickly now because mm. mm-hmm. you know there are so many great improvements so constantly and I think that all everyone who was involved in the film uh, we weren't we didn't really know about how to do special effects, visual effects. You know, we yeah. it's true, right? Like yeah, we all Richard came had no experience from, doing that, so he just wanted to keep it real so yeah. and real's never going to look fake you yeah. know whereas uh, some illusion of something with the CGI always ends up looking so dated even if at the moment which is a strange thing that we become like literate in this yeah. weird way and our literacy for those effects 
gets more and more advanced so quickly that we wouldn't you know audiences in the 50s didn't look at a rear projection of the street in the movie so, you know they'd be driving you'd see the street going behind them and audiences in mm. the 50s would look at that and go oh yeah 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 never think of it and now it looks so you know obviously yeah. fake to us so it's interesting no i know i i often find that really weird the way we accept reality until something seems more real yeah mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask about the accents in the film. Yeah. Um, were they hard to do? And was it the sort of thing that, you know, were you the guy that kept going between takes with the accent? Or did we you tried to, to do that, yeah. but it faded pretty fast. Yeah. We tried to keep the accents up. Uh, I had a Willie Nelson song that I would sing four takes to get me back in the accent. Um, and uh, Sing I, it. Living on the road, my friends. <laughs> I can't do it anymore. Um, Poncho and Lefty. <clears throat> anyway, so uh, uh, I learned that I had to learn the accent in a week because I got the part right before we started filming. Um, and our dialect coach, Rick Lipton, was so incredible. Who's in London, um, lives Ooh. here. So yeah, anyone looking for a good dialect coach, he was great. And he not only taught us how to do the accents, but why these people were doing the accents, and gave us such a cultural background on these on on the characters and how they're values and mentalities would uh, present that and he would talk to us very much about the psychology of the character and for me because I was really cramming for the test and really trying to get ready as soon, as fast as possible my conversations with him really um, illuminated a lot about mm. the psychology of the character because he would look at the way the character talks and explain to me why a character would talk mm. like that and what his background would be so it's like he did a bunch of acting work for me which I really appreciate it. Uh, just finally, I want to ask you both. I mean, you've got both got other very exciting films coming up mm. as well. Um, Alice, we just had a clip of Inferior on the website, and it looks mm. pretty creepy. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it was the craziest thing to shoot. Um, I remember when I first heard about it, they said, you know, um, look, you know, there's this film, and I can't tell you, you know, we can't tell you what it's about, and um, we'll, we can never tell you what it's about. Um, but we want you to really? improvise, yeah, <laughs> on in an audition as this character. And they told me about. It. And I was like, w "What do you mean? Like, I'll never know what it's about." And they're like, "Well, they're going to shoot it in chronological order, and it's a um, psychological slash sort of horror film thriller." And um, yeah, they, you know, they 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 want to know if they can. They they want to find actors who can do this and mm. who want to do this wow. mm. and I said yeah okay <laughs> like sure so have you seen it now I have okay. I have and I was still scared but it's um, <laughs> there's something sort of uh, uh, it like it's it reminded me very much of like a throwback to um, I don't know if you've seen Duel the mm -hmm. really early Steven Spielberg film of that um, you know elephant in the room yeah. thing not knowing where the you know whether you're just reacting or I, I don't know I that was what we we played played with and it was great it was cool. the weirdest best thing I've ever experienced we're looking forward Actually. to seeing it and, and then uh, Alden you've got we're all actually very if you'll forgive me stoked about Stoker mm -hmm. um, but uh, Blue Jasmine as well with Woody mm -hmm. Allen yeah. how was that yeah great um, I got to work with Kate Blanchett who was so incredible and Alec Baldwin who's also so incredible um, very different types of actors, yeah. but both just so talented and so great at what they do. And that was 
the experience of a lifetime to be able to work with them and then working with Woody Allen and just being a part of that film history in a way um, getting my name hopefully up in the up in the white font, in font the, yeah. yeah with the jazz playing and stuff <laughs> that's very very exciting and he um, and it, you know he gave more direction I kind of studied up on how he worked because he works in a very particular way he works very fast does very few takes and so I looked, I, I watched this, that big documentary on him that's really wonderful. And, um, and, and he gave me a lot more direction, was more communicative than I had been told that he would be. And, uh, and it was, it was I, I, I loved the scenes that I got to do. Um, and I'm excited to find out what the movie's about. Because I didn't, I didn't get a script. So. Oh, wow, there's a common theme here to your mm-hmm. upcoming project. Oh, yeah, 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 that's true. All right, well, uh, thank you very much both for coming in. My Beautiful Creatures is out here on the... 13th? Of February, yeah. Excellent. Is that right? Yeah. All right. <laughs> Excellent. Nice work. Just in time for Valentine's Day. Yeah, yeah. And uh, best of luck with that thank and you. in the future. Yeah. Thank you Thanks so much. much. Thank you so much. Lovely to speak to you. They seemed like very nice people, Helen. They were, actually. They were a lot of fun. And he was discovered by Steven Spielberg, or at a bar mitzvah by Steven Spielberg or something like yeah, that? Yeah, but his kind of breakthrough was with Francis Ford Coppola uh, in Tetro. He was in that with Vincent Gallo. Well, wow. that, that the one about the, the coloured blocks that you try and fit into a Let's say yes. Yeah, makes as much sense as anything else. Good, excellent. Uh, time for our movie news. James, it's time yes. for you to say something. It, it is time for me to say something. Uh, my, my movie news has been delegated to Ali. Hello. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't have time. <laughs> Reed couldn't be asked uh, to look and find one. Outrageous. Okay, I'm going to be James. Uh, you'll notice no difference. You, you uh, have to do it as me and it be a story that I would choose. Okay. Hmm... You are suddenly now interested in, in Quentin Tarantino. Is that okay? He Carry loves on. him. He loves him. Okay, this was a new story that I personally picked up, cough, cough, uh, please send all checks to my home address, uh, when I was at the BAFTA's winner's press conference, ably mm. hosted by somebody called something something Chris Hewitt. Mm. But um, if I remember rightly, I mean, you picked it up, but who asked the question that elicited said answer? Someone. Hmm. Hmm. Anyway, carry on. He was talking about whether he would want to do another rewritten history story because obviously Django Unchained and Inglorious Bastards have both taken a time period in this amazing world that we live in and recrafted it so that the people who were unjustly injusted uh, got a chance to <laughs> just themselves. Uh, oh, and he got quite animated about this. He was also obviously really, really, really happy that he j- just won a BAFTA. So he's really bubbly and bouncy and, and full of beans. And he said, and I can't do the voice, uh, this rewritten history theme. God, you really can't do the voice. Really it's the worst Tarantino really I've bad. ever heard. It begs a trilogy. It begs to have a third movie on this theme. I haven't decided about what yet, but I wouldn't be surprised. Dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot. Now, he's previously talked this up in a kind of round-the-houses way. This is the most direct way he's actually said, yes, well, you know, it begs a trilogy, doesn't it? Mm. Mm. Uh, he's mentioned the Apaches and a 1930s cops and robbers gangsters flick. So anyway, yeah, Naturally, the internet went slightly um, uh, batshit crazy about what he could possibly use as his next thing. And uh, I went to Twitter and and I I wasn't quite expecting what I got, but what I got was a lot of very silly suggestions, uh, (laughs) including dinosaurs, exclamation mark, uh, 1966 World Cup, the Crusades, the Vietnam War, uh, the Big Bang... Vikings, exclamation mark, uh-huh. uh, the moon landings, yeah. uh, the Revolutionary War, and the English Civil War. Uh, now, 
we drafted six of these uh, some silly some not but I think the best bet would probably be I would say my personal guess Revolutionary War or uh, American Indians or 1930s Gangster I think that would be a reasonable guess as to what he might tackle next hmm well, see, I don't see the, the great injustice in 1930s gangsters. Nor do I, but he has specifically yeah. said that. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Thoughts? I'd go for the Native American strand like that. It would be most thematically obvious. If we're talking about persecuted people who, you know, fight back, that would seem to be the one to go for. Or the 1966 World Cup. I presume that's reference to the <laughs> the Jeff Hurst sh- uh, shot that may or may not have crossed the line. <laughs> yes. Is that, is that what we're talking about? Well, that's oh, what okay. Quentin, you know, lies awake at night thinking. The Russian about. linesman. Pickles the dog, <laughs> Kenneth Walston home. You can the see the banter now, can't you? I can uh, see it happening. And also, women's suffrage was another key one. I think Charlie Brooker mentioned it a while ago, but well, I think every woman who responded to that tweet actually suggested it, um, and it wouldn't be so far out of you know out of bounds for Tarantino. He's always had when he has had female characters, they've tended to be good ones. Yeah. So um, you know, I'd like to see it personally, but we'll see. Okie dokie. And Helen, what have you got? Um, I thought I'd talk about the BAFTAs themselves, which okay. obviously took place at the weekend. Um, and uh, it was a big night for Argo, further further leading to speculation that it is the one to beat come Oscar night. Um, it certainly looks that way right now. Um, but the, the awards were quite widely spread. Argo won yeah. three, including the two big ones, director and picture. Um, but, you know, it, it didn't have everything all its own way. Les Mis took more awards overall. It got four. Um, Skyfall got Best British Film, which is kind of, in some ways, considered the runner-up prize at, at BAFTAs. Uh, and there were some surprises. You had uh, Emmanuel Riva actually took Best Lead yeah. Actress. big surprise. Which uh, I don't think anyone kind of saw coming and to be honest I, it doesn't change my sort of Oscar feeling that she's not really in the race sadly uh, much as I think she's wonderful in the film because um, the Oscars tend to follow a slightly different drummer uh, but it was it was a, a really lovely result for the film which also picked up best foreign film mm-hmm. uh, that's a more obviously that's right um, Life of Pi did well, you know, it was it was kind of... technical things, yeah. Yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis gave the most charming speech I've maybe ever heard uh, <laughs> on winning Best Actor for um, for Lincoln. He claimed that he'd been in character as himself as a BAFTA winner for 55 <laughs> years, had rigged up his house so that uh, applause happens every time he gets out of a chair, um, and had little tiny dioramas of the sets of every BAFTA since the 1950s sitting around in every room he lives in. You know, so. you say he's joking. Well, but... do we know? You don't know. You don't know. Yeah, it was it was a it was an interesting night. Mm. An interesting night. Uh, the Skyfall uh, BAFTA, the one on one for because it won uh, best score as well for Thomas Newman. It did, yes. Which is a good score. Yeah. The BAFTA, the Bond one, was the first it had won since 1963 for yeah. *From Much Love*, best British cinematographer. Funnily enough, at the time, which Michael G. Wilson didn't even know. So you told him. I did tell him. And how did he take it? He hit me with his BAFTA. Wow. Yeah, those things are heavy, by the way. Well, yeah, was, so we've learned that now. Yeah, I was lucky enough to be. Yeah, I was lucky enough to get out of there casually. But um, <laughs> in my uh, sort of guise in the night as the host of the press conferences, uh, Anne Hathaway let me hold hers, and so does Sir Alan Parker. Wow, which was nice. Sadly, I had to give him back afterwards. But you know, kind Shame. of, kind of everything. Uh, uh, any more stories? We good? I have one quick one. I yep. mentioned Charlie Brook here earlier. I was hoping to do a really snappy segue, but you jumped to Helen like a big old bastard. Uh, Downey <laughs> Junior. Robert. Downey Jr. Uh-huh. Um, has picked up the rights to convert one of Charlie Brooker's Black Mirror episodes from mm-hmm. the previous season, not the one that's currently on Channel 4 right now, but from the last series. It's called, uh, the. it was the third one of the three, and personally it was my favourite. It was called The Entire History of You, and it was the story of a world, a future world, 
uh, near future world where people had grains implanted into their brains which allowed them to see and remember everything they saw and experienced and then you could replay those moments so that niggling feeling in that meeting where you said something really stupid and you thought nah nobody will pick that up yes everyone has and you should feel stupid uh, it was uh, it starred Toby Kebbell and Jodie Whittaker uh, it's that one uh, so it's quite exciting now Robert Downey Jr. hasn't said this is him as a producer he hasn't said he's going to star in it or anything like that it's just of note that it's been picked up and I'm quite curious of the three I thought that was possibly the most cinematic pig fucking to one side okay we should point out as well that you said Charlie Brooker but it was actually written by Jesse Armstrong that episode but it's his it's his show it's his yeah it's so, his show but, so that was my segue you yeah but uh, Jesse Armstrong has been hired to write the script and Jesse Armstrong of course is one half of the great duo who write Peep Show along with Sam Bain so uh, it'd be very very interesting to see that Robert Downey Jr. is now apparently insisting on only working with British writers who have come from sitcoms after Drew Pearce uh, on Iron Man 3 and Sherlock Holmes 3 so there you go fantastic uh, okay we're done all news done? Good? That's sure. all the news. Because we've got another interview here because we've got four of them. Let's go. Blinking traffic jam this week. Uh, David Oyelowo, or Oyelowo, to actually pronounce his name correctly, is one of Britain's brightest actors, first making his mark in spooks on TV before moving to LA where he nabbed roles in the likes of Lincoln, Jack Reacher, The Paperboy, and Rise of the Planet of the Apes. He returns to the small screen on Sunday night with the complex one-off Channel 4 spy drama Complicit, and he popped into the pod booth to talk to myself and Nick Dissemlian. Uh, we're delighted to be joined in the pub with by David Oyelowo, who's the star of, well, Jack Reacher, Lincoln, uh, The Paperboy coming out in March, and of course, Complicit, which will be seen on Channel 4 very, very soon. And you have just landed in London, and you have massive jet lag. Is that fair enough to say? Yes, I have I have the kind of jet lag that means that I fall asleep on the tube, which I did last night, uh, and I, I woke up to the sound of my own snoring, <laughs> which is uh, mightily embarrassing. And then I uh, and then I fell asleep in the bath and nearly drowned myself. So uh, <laughs> it's a miracle I'm here. Well, thank God you made it. Yeah. So th- let's start by talking about Complicit, which is a, a very very fascinating TV drama about the nature of torture and the use of torture in the war on terror. Mm. And can you talk about First of all, who you play and what complicit is and uh, and what drew you to the role? Yeah, I play Edward Akubo in, in the film and uh, through the course of the film we watch Edward who's been tracking uh, potential terrorists for quite a while. Uh, this terrorist is played by Asha Ali and um, it becomes clear that a potential ricin attack is about to take place in London and he tracks this, this guy to uh, Yemen first and then Egypt and the moral dilemma in the film, which is largely what the film centers around, is should he employ the indigenous technique of getting information out of someone like this terrorist, which is torture, mm-hmm. or uh, do what, especially post-Guantanamo Bay, is now become uh, absolute edict, which is uh, to, to go through the, pro- the protocol uh, of, you know, you, you'd simply... Now, post Guantanamo, you cannot make, you can make very few moves uh, as a spy without it going up a certain chain of command. Which, of course, that that lack of uh, of autonomy means that it slows down the process. So, if you have someone who uh, you know is about to carry out an attack hmm. in the UK imminently, and you have that kind of bureaucracy to deal with potentially. By the time it's gone up the chain of command, it's too late. And that's the uh, the dilemma that my character has in the film. And is this definitely the end of the story? Because shows like Homeland and 24 have managed to spin 
these these kind of counter terrorist characters out for years and years. Mm-hmm. Is there talk of bringing coming back to make a kind of follow up to this? Or? I love you for suggesting that. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, who knows? It, it's you know that that tends to be incumbent upon the the reaction of the audience to the piece. Um, but you know, anyone who sees the film will will, will see that there is uh, unfinished business. Uh, in in terms of how how we leave it, and that was also very conscious because you know unlike spooks, what you what we didn't want to do with this is tie in a nice little bow at the end. This is an ongoing um, thing we're dealing with. You know, anyone who has gone through an airport uh, since nine eleven will you know you, we it affects all of our lives. You know, the world we now live in. So to in some way tie in a nice nice you know little package at the end would would be disingenuous so who knows those shows do usually get quite silly after a couple of years <laughs> yes that's true and we don't want to be silly now do we <laughs> uh so um so hopefully we'll err on the side of good taste you seem like a very calm guy but yeah how nervous did you get delivering the gettysburg address to Daniel <laughs> well you know what the gettysburg address was actually one of the the, the least of my worries it was literally being around my acting hero that was just so nerve-wracking i mean i i literally haven't been that nervous since since drama school and it was largely because you know i kid you not this guy just means so much to me in terms of um what he is able to do as an actor he's one of the only actors who when i watch his work i have to shake myself away from wanting to give up acting <laughs> um, because he's just so so good and, and uh and, and you know it's 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 harder you know i we had this on spooks actually you know when you're doing a series and you're there every day you get into a groove you know you know your character well you're used to the crew you're used to the direct you're used to the way things work so on the whole you don't go in every day with butterflies we would have a highly accomplished actors who would come in to do one scene, an interrogation scene, or they were playing some MP or they were playing some spy from MI6 and they would be bricking it, you know, <laughs> partly because they come in and they've just suddenly, it's a bit like, you know, watching a, a tennis match and someone goes, right, come in and just one rally quick. And it's just, you, you freeze. And it's, it was a bit like that on Lincoln. You know, they, they were deep into the shooting of it all that, you know, and, and let's not forget that this, you know, young up-and-comer called Steven Spielberg is directing the movie as well. Uh, so, you know, it was just like, I mean, the the absolute epitome of what what you'd want by way of a dream scenario. So, yeah, it was it was it was very very nerve wracking. But uh, once I got through the nerves, uh, the Gettysburg Address came quite well, partly because I'd crammed it so damn hard because I, <laughs> I knew how nervous I was. And he was deep in character, so yeah. did you do a bit of in character? Were you kind of staying in character while you were doing that? Well, you know what, I had one of the most surreal things that happened to me on the film was that, uh, I mean, you have to call, you know, on the film we were told, you, you either have to call him Mr. Lincoln or Mr. President, he's in character the whole time, and what happened is this scene we were doing, it was, we had rain machines going, it was very cold, and then between takes, Daniel Day-Lewis was at a heater, sort of heating his his hands and then Steven Spielberg goes up to him he's got his big cigar and you know I'm, I'm sort of stood in the rain with all the rest going wow that's so cool <laughs> look at them two titans warming their hands at the heaters this is so amazing 
and Steven Spielberg uh, goes, oh, David, David, don't don't be out there in the cold. Come over. So I go over and I'm warming. <laughs> oh my god, I'm warming my hands at this heater, and all I want to say for the entire five minutes that we stood there completely silent was my left foot. <laughs> you were so amazing in my left foot. But you know the the environment that had been created was just one where you just couldn't. It just there was no room for small talk. No room for so uh, how's how's mm. the film been going? Oh, so Stephen, you know, how's it? Everything all right, Daniel? You feel like you're you're doing good work because like, like, you know if you need any tips, um, you know. Um, so uh, it, it was just so surreal to be stood there all that time with him and not say anything. But that was the environment that was um, on that set. It was very uh, serious, but in a good way. And presumably you've met him since. I have. And, you know, and, and I now, when I when I met uh, Daniel just, oh gosh, I, I saw him last week. And um, you sort of, re- you realise that I did not meet Daniel Day-Lewis on that set. I entirely <laughs> was in the presence of Abraham Lincoln because he's just a a 180 degree different person um oh. you know that than than who I encountered on that set which is kind of what's amazing about him really so have you had the chance then to go up to him and go my left foot oh my god <laughs> no I'm trying to play it cool now because the film's <laughs> the film's doing very well as I'm sure you know and I, I'm you know, aware of it yeah I, I, I'm, I'm just uh, very very glad to be part of the, the, the ride so I'm trying to make uh, Daniel think of me as uh, you know the second greatest actor on planet earth so I won't be doing that and I'm guessing the atmosphere was slightly different on the set of the paperboy um, so I interviewed you and Matthew McConaughey together in Cannes yes. and he described it as the film as transcendental sexidation it's <laughs> a phrase that's stuck in my head ever since but um, wow. you, you have, you, you're in one very memorable scene with Nicole Kibben and John Cusack I don't want to I'm not sure I'm allowed to describe what it is on air but wow I'm going to describe it because it's ahead. absolutely ridiculous I mean <laughs> um, it was the reason why I'm going to describe it is because it was my first day of shooting <laughs> and um, you know we, we it's basically a scene in which uh, myself, Matthew McConaughey, Zac Efron, and Nicole uh, all go in and, and visit John Cusack, who's a prisoner in in the in this um, lifer's prison. And uh, Nicole and John are, are, are playing, you know, uh, characters who are in love with each other, in spite of the fact that he's behind bars. And uh, they decide to have what can only be described as air sex with each other. They they are not allowed. They are not. They have to keep about a five six foot uh, sort of uh, separation between them. And they somehow manage to. Engage in a sexual act that uh, culminates in orgasm, um, while myself, Matthew, and Zach are in the room. And uh, <laughs> if anyone, if you see this film, every reaction that I have in that film is not acting. That is a hundred percent real shock <laughs> on my face the whole time so it's worth seeing it for that alone so what was the uh, conversation around the heaters like on the <laughs> after, after that take oh my goodness yeah we, we couldn't look into each other's eyes after that scene. It's, it's basically let alone to be talking about past work <laughs> what was the paperboy experience I can like because it was one of those movies that uh 
received a mixed reception. I think it's fair to say it mm-hmm. had some had some applause. It had some like you were actually there. Um, it's an interesting movie to watch first thing in the in the morning when you've just got out yes, of bed. Yes, yes. I, I think we really suffered with that. You know, mm. I, I think a lot of the the press watched it at some eight a.m. screening, and uh, and I think that was the, the screening from which we got a, a lot of this uh, not so great press, and then. Mm. You know, we, we we screened it at the uh, the actual you know premiere, as it were, at Cannes, and got this was it sixteen minute standing ovation. You know, so but we always knew that it was going to be a very polarizing yeah. film. Uh, we knew that while we were shooting it, you know, you you read the read the script, you you knew that was going to be the case. And and Lee is a very Lee Daniels is a very uncompromising director and you know for me personally one of the main reasons to do it was that you know I would rather do work that provokes um, a strong reaction either way than something that you go and watch in the theatre and you know five minutes afterwards you've you've forgotten it yeah Um, so so and and Paperboy is definitely not something you forget in a hurry that is true (laughs) <laughs> we're still talking about it still thinking about that scene uh, yes. and you've worked with Lee again in New Orleans on uh, The Butler that's right in which he played the son of Oprah Winfrey and Forrest Whitaker that's right yes what was that like? Uh, incredible really uh, The Butler centres around it's a true story um, about a butler who's in the White House for eight presidents and uh, and I yes as as I as you say I, I play um, Forrest Whitaker who's playing the butler's son and the the film is largely the juxtaposition of him uh, working for the quote unquote the man uh, in in the White House, while I, in reaction and rebellion to that, become a civil rights activist. So the the the, the film, you know, so while he's in the White House with Eisenhower, JFK, Reagan, Nixon. Um, you know Carter. I'm you know marching with Martin Luther King. I'm in, I'm in the sit-ins. Mm. I'm I'm doing freedom rides. I abscond to Malcolm X. I become a Black Panther, and then eventually a senator. So you you have two sides of of the black experience in the in the 20th century. You know you have my father being played by Forrest, who's coming out of the world in which his father was a sharecropper and then his father's father was a slave and you have me as the next generation you know those who marched with king and who went on to a world in which uh, you know barack obama could indeed be president and that's our film goes from 1926 to 2008 the uh, inauguration of obama it sounds epic because you got this incredible yeah. lineup of actors playing all the different presidents as well. Yeah, that was it was very very strange. I mean, you know, for me as an actor, I was there for the whole three months of shooting, and to have Vanessa Redgrave, Jane Fonda, uh, Robin Williams, Alan Rickman, you know, all these incredible actors, Melissa Leo, coming in for a day or two, it just felt completely wrong while I was <laughs> while I was there going, oh, welcome, welcome, oh, bye. The um, spooks again. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was. Except they weren't getting blown up. Uh, yes, yes, and they weren't bricking it, which I think is because they were all Oscar winners and uh, they knew what they were doing. Um, so, uh, but yeah, that was a phenomenal uh, experience. Um, and Alan Rickman as Ronald Reagan, mm. does he do the voice? You know what? Everyone came in and just nailed this thing. It was extraordinary. I honestly, on paper, I would never 
personally cast Alan Rickman as Reagan, but of everyone in the film, he actually looks the closest to the person he's playing yeah, I've seen it. than anyone else, which is just kind of extraordinary. A testament to him as an actor, a testament to the makeup and the foresight of whether it's the casting director or Leo, whoever's idea it was to cast him. But, you know, the the fine line you're always treading with, with these kind of roles, and you see it with, with Daniel in in Lincoln is that there has to be an acknowledgement of 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 you know physically what they look like mm. how they sounded but you've got to at some point in a bid to humanize the character let that stuff go and i think every actor in the butler as far as what i saw was was able to do that because what you don't want to do is an impersonation you want to sort of flesh out mm. the human being behind the iconography excellent i'm i look forward to it and david thanks for joining us it's been a thank pleasure. you thank you very much thank you all to the tube <laughs> he's a lovely chap I have to say but now we have to carry on film review time so many films out this week we can only focus on a few or this podcast will be a mini-series so we're going to start with a film that came out on Valentine's Day as a bit of a romantic alternative to gushy rom-coms it's the embargo shattering A Good Day to Die Hard the fifth film in the franchise that began with arguably the greatest action movie of all time James fair to say yes Die Hard is in fact the greatest action movie of all time there you I go. don't no think longer. you need the word arguably it, well no, there the, is no the, the raid and hard boiled have uh, <laughs> not they like to punch it and yeah, you know. no. uh, and of course just lethal weapon to in Roadhouse um, <laughs> I'm kidding uh, this time Bruce Willis and John McClane heads to Russia to team up with his CIA agent son Jack played by Jai Courtney who you heard earlier on so this one's been getting a critical kicking already now the embargo has been raised so does this succeed where Hans Gruber failed in killing John McClane I can confidently say without spoiling that John McClane does not die in this film okay um, I get the feeling the franchise may do that yeah it, it's it's not good I think it's fair to say I mean just to, to be clear on this, this this sort of sets up with Jai Courtney um, being sentenced to well he's he's in court in Russia uh, along with another guy who we're not really sure who he is but he's something to do with the science and uh, John McClane uh, meets up with a guy at a prison break and he tells him that his son's going to prison in Russia so he gets on a plane to go on vacation except it's not a vacation and then he gets there and he wanders around and then everything explodes and that's pretty much the film okay yeah yeah, it's, it's quite light on plot it's quite heavy on things blowing up and to be fair to John Moore, the things blowing up blow up very well. Uh, I, no real complaints about that. The, just, the film just doesn't really hang together as a story. Uh, and I don't think it does anything to earn the action beats at all. I mean, it just they seem to be sort of strung in there or scattered around like punctuation. Um, and it just feels very hollow. I mean, more than anything else, it feels like a film that isn't a die-hard film. And that's not necessarily the end of the world. I mean, Len Wiseman's Die Hard 4.0 slash Live Free or Die Hard, depending on where you live, um, isn't really a die-hard film. But I think it's, it's a decent action film, isn't it? It's not a bad film at all. Uh, I think this, unfortunately, fails on both counts. It's not a die-hard film. It's not a good action film. In, it's just not. Ali, do you think that's fair? I think that is fair. I, I just like to pick a, a like like you were saying about the action beats not being kind of earned. When it does happen, it is really both barrels. A huge amount of action happens, and a lot goes on, and cars flip over and over and over, and things explode. And you know, you're definitely getting your explosions worth. But the first. 10, 15 minutes are John McClane in a car, John McClane in a plane, John McClane in a cab, and I'm just a bit bored. Mm. So when and the that, action... that, that Russian cab driver is no Argyle. Certainly ain't. Mm. Uh, there's but no it, big bear either. The issue that also bugs me is that John McClane is he's the archetypal reluctant hero. He's not a guy who looks for trouble. He's a guy who, you know, hacking the same shit happens to the same guy five times. Um, hmm. And yet this is one where he's actively 
being a cock, quite frankly. He's mm. going out there, you know, looking for trouble. He's punching civilians in the face, you know, and it just doesn't feel like he's John McClane. It's a completely different guy. There were a couple of moments where I thought he had, you know, had maybe a stroke and his personality had irrevocably changed because he mm. was doing things that didn't necessarily feel like John McClane. I just felt like this was another action movie mm. and there was just something that had changed and he, he, he kind, of, kind of goes up to the bad guys and says, shoot me, stuff like that, where you go, well, why would you do that? He, he says, oh, I'm going to go kill bad guys because that's what I do. Well, not really. It's not really what he does, is it? I, I would say this felt a little assembly line. It was in quite often over the top and unrealistic. It, it, at one point, I thought it would, may have been plotted by somebody who was 12 and had a toy helicopter and a truck and just went... Crashed the two into each other. Yeah, it does have that. I mean, also, and I think Chris pointed this out, it, it's a film that sort of feels like it actually it, it all front loads the action because the most impressive, most expensive action sequence is fairly near the beginning of the film. It's a big car chase. And everything after that feels a bit on a budget. Um which is a shame actually because I mean the car chase is actually quite good yeah, I everything agree. after that I think is quite anticlimactic even on, on the actual level uh, yeah. and as good says the, the familial bickering and bantering between the, the young Jai who is a super spy and um, and Bruce's John doesn't hang it's very on the nose very on the nose and then of course there's the other sort of father-child paradigm in there uh, and again it's all, it's all very very obvious it's, uh, we're really being quite unpleasant at this, aren't we? I mean, so. I, I, I must say that I was very, I was surprised about just how much we got in the terms of explosion and action front. I, I was, dare I say, impressed by that because mm. I, I, I just wasn't expecting it. I think there's two elements, isn't it? There's, there's, is this a good film, standalone as an action film, and is it a good film known that it's a die-hard film? So you, you get slightly punitive because it's not a good die-hard film, but I think even taken as an action film, you know, frankly, you'd. Uh, you'd be better off with some of Bruce Willis's other ones quite frankly yeah I mean some of the action sequences are are, are fine uh, I, I I wonder if Bruce himself is maybe not exactly on the money with this one he, maybe he's not as engaged he's very much in one show mode throughout the film I would have said so he doesn't seem that engaged as a, in John McClane anymore and, and yeah, yeah, I agree with you he doesn't this doesn't seem like the John McClane of the first movie the reluctant hero the guy who uh, will put his life on the line because he has to this is the guy he seems to put his life on the line because he wants to there's a bit of a difference it's a weird dynamic as well because he's kind of involved with this whole caper of explosions and car crashes and stuff to save his son and his son is a super spy who can kind of handle it for himself so there isn't really any peril that implies that he has to get involved because he's got his, his, his son the guy in peril quote unquote works for the CIA I mean where's the fear that something terrible might happen to him he's got a massive gun <laughs> he does Steady. have a massive gun and another one hidden in his sock Many, many Spoiler. guns. Many, many guns indeed. So we uh, we gave this two stars. Kim Newman gave this two stars. Do you uh, think that's pretty much on the money, guys? It's not a good day to die hard. Okay, where does it stand in terms of the franchise? It's easily the Stone Cold Bang last. last. yeah, mm-hmm. with a bullet. I wonder how much of this is uh, can be laid at the door of, of Skip Woods. I was going to bring him up. Yes, because Skip Woods, the uh, writer of the Hitman movie. And the, the writer and of the Hitman, A-team. Swordfish, the A-Team, and Wolverine. the worst X-Men movie, uh, X-Men Origins, Wolverine. Mm. It's not a great uh, deal. I mean, I think John Moore came on with about five months to go, three to four months before, really? before shooting started. Mm. So, But I, I kind of feel I, I, I wouldn't entirely place all the blame. No, I, it's, a, it's a very, very weak screenplay. It really is. Uh, you know, and, and I think, as you're right, I think... Uh, Bruce probably didn't uh, necessarily help things uh, in the way that he he played John. 
you would think because he's you know de facto custodian of that character you know I would have preferred it if maybe he'd exercised a little bit more uh, ownership of it so Bruce Willis is talking about doing a Die Hard 6 which hopefully will be set in the one show studios where he's trapped by terrorists and has to go through that interview again um, but um, does that mean that we're going is that a chance for redemption in a way because 4 and 5 are now seen as maybe not as good as 1, 2 and 3 and I'm wondering if you have a bit of a sort of the way that George Romero made a great great zombie trilogy with Night Dawn and Day and then made a lesser zombie trilogy with Land and Diary of the Dead and then Survival of the Dead I'm wondering if maybe there's a chance to avoid that with this and make a Die Hard 6 the very best it can be and if so would you, would you, what would you do with it? You're saying do like a Fast and Furious-esque Die Hard Six and completely change it. I, would, I, I don't know if I'd do something as absurd as that. I would. I would. I'd go back to character. I'd go back to you know the, the John McClane character getting it right. And for me, fundamentally, that means giving him hair. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think this is my this is my theory. The John McClane we've seen in the last two movies isn't John McClane. He's Bruce Willis. <clears throat> he's Bruce Willis effectively playing himself in a weird sort of meta Bill Murray and Zombieland kind of kind of way. And Bruce Willis is bald. He's a balding man. He is a man who has no hair. James, he's like yourself. He's decided to embrace the razor and go bald. Why not? He has a head that Terry Gilliam once called a monument to cranial architecture. It looks beautiful. But... John McClane has never struck me as that guy. John McClane strikes me as a guy who would hold on to his hair. You think he's a comb-over kind of very, guy? He's, he's a comb-over <laughs> kind of guy. He's a lowbot wow. low kind of guy. He may even be <laughs> an advanced hair studio kind of guy. Wow. He may even be that sort of thing. And So I think if you're going to have John McClane, uh-huh. wig hard. That's so all I'm saying. You're th- basically, in your theory... Die-haired. John McClane is Samson. Yeah. <laughs> That's another... Cuts off his hair. That's the source okay. of all his power. Yes. That could be it. That's it. That's it. That's my theory on that one. Uh, one thing, quick thing to mention about Die Hard as well. Uh, there's been a controversy this week about the fact that the UK, we get a 12A rated version with yippee motherfucker apparently deleted. Yeah. It's interrupted. not quite deleted. yippee ki interrupted. Mm-hmm. interrupted. Yeah. Which, which is much as what happened with uh, 4.0, isn't yeah. it? 4.0. Uh, but the version I saw in the States and the version that the States will get is uh, a pretty full-on R-rated version with lots of F-bombs and swearing and people being shot point blank in the head and whatnot. What are what's our thoughts on this? Because I, my understanding is that this was a studio decision mm. uh, in order to try and make more money over here. It, see, one of my issues with this is you've got John McClane mowing down terrorists. It's like watching someone play Operation Wolf for fans mm-hmm. of 80s arcade machines uh, it's so sanitised there's so little blood that they feel there's no gravitas to the deaths they feel entirely disposable it's like watching someone play a computer game um, I don't know whether that would have been less the case had there been blood and gore flying around the place but it probably would have helped having seen the R-rated version and I wrote a I interviewed John Moore in LA and um, on the Fox lot and he was at the time actually going through I think at the time he was going through his director's cut but he also had to do his 12A cut um, and there was a scene where a character was being shot point blank in the head and he basically went well that's not going to be in the 12A version but how do they get round things like that when the character's being shot point blank in the head it's in the Chernobyl sequence it's the uh, you just cut to the person who's shooting's face and then you had the sound effect I mean right. I, I saw this most recently in Jack the Giant Killer like they just do this Jack a the lot. Slayer. Jack the Giant Slayer, which you can't talk about because you're embargoed. Yeah, but I can say that it's it's a it's a recent, which is trial. not necessarily a sign it's a bad film. By the way, that's just <laughs> that's just pointed out. And it's not it's not embargoed until day of release. It's, it's not embargoed until the day of release. That. Yes, and if, but yeah, that anyway. is just a recent movie where I saw it happen, where something happens to someone that is violent, and you just hear the sound effect. It's reaction shots, isn't it? You yeah. just use reaction shots. It's it's bread and butter now. Mm. 
I, I personally, after watching Die Hard 4, wasn't expecting the blood. I wasn't demanding the blood. The reaction we've had on Twitter and on Facebook and in our comments and the forums have been apoplectic with rage that it's not R-rated. But after Die Hard 4, I signed that. I was like, OK, <laughs> done. That's fine. I, you're not, it's not going to be I think, a I think they're angry, though, because John Moore went out of his way and has delivered an R-rated film. Mm. And he actually said a, a couple of months ago, or even a month ago, this is going to be R-rated. It's going to be... It's not Die Hard without being R-rated. And now... The, the goalposts have been moved just for us and I think that's what people are yeah, angry about and rightly so but equally Blood or No Blood it's a bad film so there's that two yeah. stars two stars for A Good Day to Die Hard so there we go uh, next up we have Judd Apatow's This Is 40 a semi-sequel to Knocked Up following the fortunes of Pete and Debbie from that film played of course by Paul Rudd and Leslie Mann as they confront their respective midlife crises Helen thoughts? Yeah, this was um, pretty good, I think. Um, you know, it's uh, it's another Judd Apatow comedy, so you kind of know what you're in for at this point. You know, there's going to be a lot of sort of uh, quite realistic and sometimes relatable kind of human drama. It's not all going to be ridiculous, over-the-top kind of, you know, fart gags, although there will be some in there as well. Mm. Um, but uh, but it is, you know, it's going to have the sort of the dramedy elements as well as the comedy elements and that's certainly the case here so they've picked up two of the really likeable supporting characters and knocked up probably in that film more likeable than the leads who are a bit annoying oh unreservedly so um, so they've gone for Paul Rudd Leslie Mann uh, the younger Apatows as their daughters and uh, they're kind of having midlife crises uh, brought on by turning 40 and also all sorts of financial difficulties which are kind of brought up frequently throughout the film and then kind of not really resolved at all at the end um, spoiler but uh, yeah it's it's likeable it's frequently quite funny because there are some very funny people in there um, like all Apatow comedies it's it's a good half hour too long if not more yeah I I have a tough time with this movie we gave it four stars and by all means you should listen to the official Empire review and that four stars go and see it it's a knockout it's a laugh you'll laugh your head off brilliant way film of the year um, <laughs> however I would say that I had a real problem with this film um, because the glib joke, the glib obvious joke, but that's not going to stop me using it because <laughs> when is it ever, uh, is this is 40 minutes too long. And it is. It's 133 minutes long, this film. 133. I think I broke my personal record for checking my watch uh, during a screening. Wow, because you check your this. watch a lot during I check some my watch, screenings. Uh, during some screenings, I can check my watch. I, I harumped 52 times. <laughs> wow. Um, I was not happy towards the end of this movie. The main problem is there's a great really funny 93 minute comedy in here yeah. but I think Judd Apatow has pretensions of being the next Woody Allen the next uh, you know serial comedic uh, force in filmmaking and that side of it doesn't work um, and we're meant to root for people who you know at the at the 10th time of being asked to feel sorry for millionaires who were digging a financial hole for themselves I kind of stopped caring it is true that it is very hard to get a lot of sympathy together for people who live in the house that these people live in their dilemma is oh my god my record label is not working oh god well maybe we can survive on the income from my wife's dress store in Los Angeles and then they go well maybe we can sell one of our two incredibly expensive cars or maybe our five bedroom home and I, you know, or maybe you stop paying thousands of dollars out on a party for yourself at the end of the movie and I, I, I just do you think that Judd Apatow could be one of the very few directors who when they do a director's cut it's actually special cut for DVD only where it's 93 minutes <laughs> and chops out the excess well no because now with no deleted scenes I have actually <laughs> seen uh, because I've you know there, there, there are stories leaking out and I've seen at least four deleted scenes 
yeah. online already. So there is a version of Lizard 40 that is somehow, if you can consider this, even longer than the one that's been released in the cinemas, which is 133 minutes long, but feels much, much longer, especially towards the end when the laughs kind of do dry up a little bit. Um, my main problem with it is that, you know, as with a lot of Judd Avatar comedies, is that he needs a good editor. He needs someone who, who's going to sit down with him and go, you know what, Judd, that, imp- that bit of improv there, that joke from that actor that you brought in is fantastic. The other five that you're going to let into the scene are not so good, save those for the DVD. There are sequences here where people are just clearly running their mouths off and uh, they just need they need more discipline, I would say. More wow. discipline! You lack discipline! Wow. Your comedy Steady. voice raises its head again. Mm. <laughs> I would I would agree it's too long. I really would. I just, you know, I, I, I kind of go in, I guess, expecting that in a Judd Apatow comedy and therefore I was kind of braced for it. Maybe that was the difference. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You know, um, so anyway, we as a magazine liked it, I guess. We as a magazine loved it, and I, in, in my official stance as <laughs> Empire's Chris Hewitt, uh, wholeheartedly endorsed this film. <laughs> yeah, this is four stars. This is four stars. And for what it's worth, I've heard some people who have, I haven't seen it, but who went to see it and actually really touched them, and they found it quite affecting. So maybe yes. we're just not 40 year old enough. Maybe Thank we're not. God for that. Maybe we're not. Come back in a few years and maybe you know, I'll just say that film, that film was my life. If you take away the the five bedroom house, the two cars, the <laughs> four bedrooms, private school, the uh, the dress shop, and the record label business, yeah, and then I would yeah, settle yeah. for half the square footage of that house. I really would. I'm really reasonable that uh, way. I'm happy with a room. <laughs> rooms some headphones and a microphone and I'm happy uh, anyway uh, last, this is 40 the brilliant this is 40 uh, moving on to beautiful creatures now uh, Helen very very quickly in this one what do uh, we think yeah th- this one is an adaptation of another young adult fantasy romance novel um, and this time it's not vampires it's casters or uh, I think in general terms just witches basically uh, so it's the classic case of boy meets girl a girl turns out, turns out to be a uh, born to a family of witches and under a curse which might or might not turn her into an evil person on her 16th birthday boys like ah so uh, so yeah that's the, the basic plot um, it's all set in the sort of deep south it's got that kind of southern gothic thing going on mm-hmm. um, my big problem with it was that it's there's too much plot in the book all of which they try to fit on the screen there's all this kind of mythology and world building to to kind of cram in and it actually doesn't give you much time to focus on the characters because if you think back to hate to mention it but like twilight which is the same kind of market this one's clearly trying to go for there's actually not that much to establish all you have to establish is there's vampires they can go outside in daylight they sparkle boom done um this one however has to kind of building the rules for what works with the magic how it works how the, what this curse is where it came from does it though see they spend an awful lot of time labouring this point and I wonder if they actually couldn't have just done there are witches when they get to 16 they either become good or evil done Emmy Rossum she's hot she's evil brilliant yeah but there's all this there's all that <laughs> the fiddling around the edges I, I agree they could have probably made it more streamlined than yeah. they in I, fact I just did, think any film whose large dramatic set piece is the lead character sitting in a library researching a book has a, a pacing problem it does have I'm that as well I I'm completely agree however I think I, I do think I have some sympathy with uh, with a lot of it coming from the book having read the book mm. and then I think they're also trying to do that thing which you sh- you've always got to be really careful with in a first movie they're trying to set up the franchise 
Ooh. Yeah, and that yeah. can be that can be a real problem because it means, you know, like with Harry Potter, the first couple are really plodding because they have to set up all this stuff for the later films. It's the same th- kind of thing here. By the time you got to the third, fourth, fifth Harry Potters, you were able to jettison all that extra bump because it didn't matter anymore and just kind of work with what what you needed to to make it good on screen. And uh, and this one's a little bit more kind of, you know, Columbus Potter. But it's, it, it has some fun. Like The early sort of scenes where she comes to the school and she's a little bit weird and everyone thinks she's a bit of a mentalist. Mm. That has quite a fun, almost stokerish vibe to it, which is obviously because Ehrenreich is in that as well. Yeah. Um, it's when you start getting bogged down in, you know, Jeremy Irons and that awful Caroline accent that he wheels out. Um, it, it seems to lose the plot a little bit, especially when you get inside the Magic Mansion with the uh, ultra-hip, you know, East London interior decor. Yeah, there is there is one of those. But Emma, Emma Thompson, Thompson's fantastic. Yeah, has yep. a great time as a possessed Bible basher. She's fantastic. Uh, and Emmy Rossum, who is not in it enough, quite frankly, uh, was a high point for me, I thought. Are these guys meant to be 15? Yeah. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> He's meant to be 16, 17. Yeah, he's she's, 17, she's 15. she's 15. It's not that far off her real age. Oh, that's scary. <laughs> anyway, so we gave that two stars. Two stars. Yeah. There you go. So it's a bad week for Simon Gruber as well, is that what you're saying? Yeah, a little Afraid bit. so. Okay. And chances of a sequel, Slim? It, it depends how well it does at the box office. I mean, you know, There's Twilight like, what, five didn't, books, Twilight books? didn't exactly get great reviews either, and that didn't stop it true. getting sequels. So Very we'll true. See. It's not Twilight, though. Let's be. It's not Twilight, honest. to be clear. Maybe so they're in a sort of sequels waiting room in the ether with the losers and the A team just Maybe. waiting for the uh, the call to come. <laughs> in fairness, um, uh, Alden and Alice are both both fine. So uh, yes, and know, we were proud to have them on the podcast. Yeah. Those kids are going places fast. There are other movies worthy of your time this week from the excellent Keanu Reeves fronted documentary about film in the digital age side by side to the Alex Gibney documentary Mea Maxima Culpa uh, which is about I guess the Catholic Church yeah. so good timing good timing indeed uh, and if you want to see a prime contender for the worst film of the year Danny Dyer and Denise Van Outen star alongside a cavalcade of Britain's oldest acting talent from Lionel Blair to Christopher Biggins and more including Dame Judi Dench as a bag lady indeed uh, in Run for Your Wife which really has to be seen to be believed it's proper naughty as Danny might say and that would be it for this week's Empire Podcast but we have one last interview to bring you before we go David Morrissey has long been one of Britain's best actors and the Liverpudlian is finally getting the recognition he deserves for his role as the governor in their brilliant TV adaptation of The Walking Dead with the show's third season returning to UK screens tonight Nick DeSemlian and I thought we'd invite him to talk about the show Hannah's impending confrontation with Andrew Lincoln's Rick Grimes we got that but we also got a wide ranging chat about music Timothy Dalton and of course Stanley Victor Collymore in Basic Instinct 2 enjoy uh, we're delighted to be joined in the pod booth by the star Welcome to the Punch and of course The Walking Dead season 3 the governor himself <laughs> Mr David Morrissey who's also I don't know if you know this a former co-star of both myself and Nick no what was that in Blitz. Oh yes, of course. Were you uh, were you hounding me with microphones? We were, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Were we running after Aiden uh, Aiden Gillen? Was that was um, it that scene? You or? were coming out of a pub in Shoreditch and right. making a very yes, slimy speech. I remember that. Yes, giving my full uh, Piers Morgan. I <laughs> you were. Oh, we did were, I have a pink shirt on? <laughs> we were playing. <laughs> You've got to be a certain man to wear a pink shirt. Yeah. We were playing kind of scuzzy paparazzi journalists, which be, wasn't a huge stretch. How did you drag that up? Yeah. <laughs> it's embarrassing. We, I think we've been cut from the film. We scoured the film, and there's no sign of. Us. Yes, <laughs> they got that memo. Then I'm glad. <laughs> uh, 
You've shot the uh, Talking of the Walking Dead. You've shot the season three finale already, haven't you? Yes, we have. Yes. How was that? It was great. Uh, I mean, I can't, it's a very difficult show to promote The Walking Dead because <laughs> I can't really talk too much about it. But um, I love the show. I love doing it. I love everything about it. I came to the show as a fan. Um, because of Andrew Lincoln and also in the in the pilot was a great mate of mine called Lenny James who played a character called Morgan with two uh, Andy's character hides out in his house and I just loved it I watched it because they were in it and then I just got so hooked into the show you know that sort of zombie genre is not my bag and then when I watched the first pilot I realised that it was much more of a character driven show it was about people in danger and, and that what will you do to protect those that you love and the shows continue to do that so when I had a chance to join it I was just over the moon it's great and I've loved every minute of it <laughs> of course you're a, you're a quite a prominent tweeter yourself yeah I like tweet yeah, yeah. It's great. I don't. And since The Walking Dead, it's gone a little bit strange. It's gone massive. So I, I, I don't tend to read everything that comes at me because because there's so much of it. But I do enjoy Twitter. Yeah. Did you just fall into it naturally, or? Yes, I did actually. I think I, I run a charity as well called Cast, which is a, a sort of creative art charity. And so we set up a Facebook and a, a Twitter campaign for that, and that was very successful. And I sort of got the bug from there, really. And I like music, so what I do is I tend to tweet some music and then people tweet back to me and say, oh, have you heard this, have you heard mm -hmm. that? And I like that. And it's and it's a take-it-or-leave-it thing for me. You know, I do know other people who just, you know, they'll be standing next to you and then they'll say something to you, but only via Twitter and you have to get it on your phone. You're going, <laughs> yes, but I'm only over here, you know. So that's a bit weird. But, I, I mean, I do, it's not something I'm slavish about, but it's, uh, I enjoy the interaction very much, so. And judging from your Twitter feed, you're a big movie watcher as well. Yeah, that's all you bigging up Amor and Barbarian Sound Studio. Barbarian Sound Studio is my movie of the year. I think uh, its simplicity is just unbelievable. I mean, it's what three locations. It's got this great performances, uh, not least by Toby uh, Jones in the middle of it. But it's a classic horror film. I mean, it really gets you, and you don't really see it. It's a sensory experience. Mm. So I love that. I love that about it. And I thought it was a very such an atmospheric movie and such a clever film so that was uh, one and, and more as well you know not a lot of locations two great before three great performances really and I found it very touching and moving but in the end very life affirming actually uh, I didn't find it uh, the depressive film that a lot of people were talking about I, I really it really gave me great hope about life rather than sort of you know being miserable about it I've got it next to my DVD player. I'm just waiting for the right night. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be in the mood to watch I mean, it. I mean, you have to watch it with, you know, it's, there's no surprise that we're all going to die, but there is a sense of watching it. And it is a, you know, there's, the clue is in the title. And I think uh, that's what I took away from it, really. And it's a very interesting film for him to have made because, you know, if you look like funny games and, you know, the piano teaching and stuff like that, they're quite dark and mm. very oppressive films. This is not really. It's a very different film for him. Uh, you are also a Liverpool Football Club fan. I am. I am. You first are. and foremost. As am I. First and foremost. <laughs> yes. Interesting. Uh, so, bear that in mind, mm -hmm. what's your assessment of Stanley Victor Collingworth's performance in Basic Instinct 2? Oh, well, Stan, I tell you, he was, he was great. He got out quick. <laughs> uh, which you know, he, he, he went down easy. I thought, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was very interesting because uh, when I read the script, I thought, right, and then I turned on and sat there and went, God, that guy looks like Stan Collymore, and I was, it's Stan Collymore, and Michael Caton Jones says, yeah, he's playing the football at the beginning, and I was like, wow. 
But you know what? He's in the pre-title sequence, Stan, which you think, oh, great. That took him so long to do because he ends up in the drink he ends up he does, going yeah. into the Thames so he had to get his paddy badge for that so he had to do all this sort of stunt stuff and all that <laughs> and it was and he really went for it you know but uh, I, I don't I don't think he got the bug I think you know he's very much happier at talk sport now doing his own phone-in show <laughs> but it was great to meet him I have to say and what about you was uh, was football ever a possibility for you? never no I mean I, I loved playing football I played in goal and but no I was always happy to be a spectator I played football I played five-a-side regularly up to a few years ago, but no, it was never an option. I flirted with boxing for a while, but it was very quickly... Uh, <laughs> that, that dream was very quickly dashed after about 10 <laughs> seconds. But uh, I, again, I enjoy that sport. I enjoy sport, and uh, but no, it was never, never an option for me. It's interesting you said first and foremost, so whenever you're on location... You know, down in Atlanta, yeah. is, is it easy to keep up with Liverpool stuff? Yeah, I mean, again, that's the that's the modern world we live in, isn't it? I mean, Twitter's great for that. Uh, you know, and Liverpool is a. Whilst I was in Atlanta, there was the TV show Being Liverpool, which course, was on yeah. as well, which was quite an odd show for me to watch. I find, I, but I, I both enjoyed that, but also. Was quite worried about it in the way I was. Thinking, you know, <laughs> Brendan Rodgers was telling team tactics. I was saying, "Don't tell them that," you know. Yeah. So, so that was quite odd. But yeah, as a you know, Liverpool is an international brand, so you know it was out there. So, but I uh, yeah, I were very. I'm very proud of my Liverpool roots and my association with Liverpool Football Club. My love of them, you know. It's probably the most. I, I can't think of another club that's supported by so many famous people. Really? Yeah. Well, not, mean, not not the, uh, the the team from Manchester. No, not the team from. Uh, give them a few years to catch up. The Glory Seekers. Uh, so it's <laughs> it's the likes of Sam Jackson supports Liverpool or claims to anyway. Uh, well, yeah. I nearly. I, I dropped my bacon sandwich when Sylvester Stallone walked on the Goodison pitch. <laughs> that was the great one. When, Imagine uh, how suddenly, he felt. Suddenly he walked on, and it was like Bill Kenwright had done a movie with him. He said, "Like, come on, you're walking out there," and it was just. Fantastic to see him. I'm surprised he didn't end up in goal. <laughs> Did you see uh, Tom Cruise at the uh, Man City Man United no, game I didn't. the other week? He no, looked, he looked bewildered. I bet he did. What is going on? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, no, there's American celebrity supporters of him. But I mean, there was a great story about. Um, Oh, God. Uh, who was the guy? I've forgotten his name. Robert Duval. Yes. Robert Duval was a hip supporter or something. St. Mirren or something well, he, like that. He cast Ali McCoist in that film he directed. That's right. Uh, was about Scot- he was yeah. mad into Scottish Premiership, wasn't he? And yeah. uh, that was just, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> but, you know, imagine turning up in a St. Mirren game and him standing next to you. That would be great. He's man of the world. Yeah, <laughs> I'm horribly out of my depth. I'm <laughs> right, right. I thought you'd be I, a bit quiet there. But I want to. I wanted to ask you about music, mm-hmm. given that you're a, a big music fan. What, what yeah. kind of stuff is on your right at the moment? At the moment, I'm listening to the Alalars. Do you know them? They're a California band who I really love, and there's a great band from Liverpool called Outfit who I really like. And uh, Lee Child, do you know Lee Child? I know Lee Child, the writer. No, no, I presume he's he's not (laughs) Lee Child. uh, (laughs) Great. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff I'm listening to at the moment. So So who who is it that kind of gives you your your music tips? I mean, um, you know, I have a 17 year old son, so lots of things come from him. Uh, But really, uh, Twitter has been a really great inspiration for me of uh, you know information for me about people just sending me stuff and saying if you like that if you looked at this and stuff and I read all the music press I quite you know I'm quite geeky with all that but uh, you know I know what I like <laughs> but uh, there is uh, it's 
Bill Fay was a great album last year. I love that album, and so and there's a there's a great album by Jonathan Wilson called Gentle Spirit. You know that album? That's great. So I'll go back over these and write them all down. Yeah, yeah. Them. But the LLRs are my thing this week. I really love them. They're okay. great, great. Did you album. like the new Bowie single? Yeah, I did. I thought it was great. Although I did thought he think the, in the video he looked a bit like Keith Lemon in that sort of puppet thing that <laughs> he had. That was a bit weird. The, the video, but yeah, I was overjoyed by that. I thought it was just you know it's, it's so great just to hear his voice again and even in that sort of terribly sad song I think you know a reflective mm-hmm. song uh, I haven't heard the album yet but I thought that was a great single you know it's like being in a room of Spotify it's it's, it's, it's amazing um, David the, the, I've got, got to go in a second here but uh, the first thing I remember seeing you in uh-huh. was Framed oh, right, okay. with Timothy Dalton yeah, yeah. what are your memories of that well my my big memory of that was he was James Bond at the time mm. And I was really nervous. I went up for it about 17 times and I eventually, you know, got the lead role and I, I thought it was a fantastic script. The great thing about Linda, Linda LaPlante's scripts is when they come, they come fully formed. They, we you know it was one of the few scripts I've ever had that you don't get any pink pages or anything like that. You know, that's it. She worked so hard on it that you have it. It was a brilliant thriller. Uh, and then they cast Timothy Dalton. And when I arrived at our first meeting, he was late because... He was coming from L.A. and it was the L.A. riots. And he came back and he was telling me all about the fact that, you know, how the city was aflame and that was an amazing thing. He was a great guy to work with. I really loved it. And, uh, you know, when you're working on something so solid, that story, you just know which are the points you need to hit. Mm. And I really had a great time on that show. And uh, Penelope Cruz was in that show. I don't remember that. Yeah, well, I never get it. <laughs> I, I remind people about it every time. No, it was. Uh, I've worked with Penelope Cruz twice myself. But uh, yeah, she was. Uh, she played. She played uh, Timothy's sort of one of one of Timothy's girlfriends who seduced me. And that took it all of two seconds <laughs> to, to seduce seduce me. She just turned up, and I was like, "Oh, go on then." And uh, so that was a really amazing. She must have been about seventeen at the time, seventeen, eighteen. Right, and she was just amazing. She was just so beautiful. But it was uh, and great. And then she was in um, Captain Corelli's Mandolin, like quite a bit later. So she was, yes, I taught her everything she knows, <laughs> <laughs> acting wise. <laughs> I, I need to see that again. Yes, I, I need you do. to do it because I had it in VHS. I taped it off the TV. It was yeah. one of the first shows I, I, I kind of set appointment viewing. Yeah, it was like great. so. I loved it. Yeah, indeed. Well, David, it's been an absolute pleasure. None for me. Thanks Good so much stuff. for coming in. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. And that is that for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more formulated fun when by complete chance we didn't schedule this. It's honestly, we'll be joined by two Bond girls, Naomi Harris from Skyfall, that's one restraining order, and Quantum of Solace's Olga Kurylenko, that's another restraining order. If they will insist on following me, I have to take these restraining orders out. It's, yeah. it's tough. Yeah, Chris, anyway, poor thing. Yeah, Olga, as she likes me to call her, is she's here to talk about Terence Malick's To The Wonder. Yeah, but I could have called her Miss Kurilenko, couldn't I? That would be respectful. It would be very respectful. Until then, it's a good day to say goodbye from Helen. Bye-bye. It's a good day to say goodbye from Ali. Goodbye. It's a good day to say goodbye from James. Happy trails. <laughs> it's a good day to say goodbye from me. Uh, yippee ki